uh, uh, your word this morning. Help me to to point to you. Help me to step away from the temptation to, to offer my own opinion. And, and Lord God, please help me to be uh, uh, concise and not long-winded. Um, you, you know my heart and you know what I, what I desire. And most of all, I desire to preach the gospel clearly. Um, I cr- pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, I am not going to do the song today. Uh, that'll be next Sunday. So uh, uh, I was considering having TJ uh, do a special today, uh, a very spiritual song by our world standards, and I am opting not to do it. However, it will be next Sunday, and so tune in to see the deeply spiritual uh, by the world standards uh, song, and uh, I'm going to pour myself a little bit of seltzer because, uh, because I have my mug which is a new one, world's best boss. Um, Those of you all who were here last week, it was a part of the sermon. I broke my mug. Um, So uh, today we're going to be doing Daniel uh, 2 and 3. I didn't include the versification. You can kind of follow along. You should have an outline of ideas. Uh, Take notes, write questions. If you have questions you would like for me to cover in the deep dive, which will not be this week, it'll be in a few weeks, uh, like on Facebook Live. Nope, I don't need it. Thank you, Bubs. Um, then uh, there are note cards in the pews, and you can write them down. I listened to the suggestions. I distributed pens and pencils, um, and I'm doing my best to improve what we're doing. Uh, if you have other ideas, other suggestions, other questions, let me know. Um, so uh, we're going to be in Daniel 2 and 3. I'm slicing it a little thinner than I did last week because... Number one, I want to try and not tax your time too much, but also because there are a couple of neat ideas in this section. And so um, um, before I dive into that, I kind of want to talk about uh, kind of want to talk about moving. Um, those of you all who who uh, are not aware, my wife and I and our children are moving into a new house or have mostly moved into a new house. And it's a really awkward experience uh, to move a mile. Because I have moved maybe 30 times in my lifetime. I have moved across the country so many times, and it is a whole thing to move across the country where you put everything in boxes, and there is an end date. And if it ain't in boxes, it ain't going, right? Um, whereas we're in this place where we're between two houses, and it's awful because you hit this point where you're like, oh, where are the trash bags? Oh, yeah, they're at the other house. I need to go get them. Where are the dryer sheets? Oh, they're over there. And then you're at the other house trying to clean up and get things in boxes, and you think, oh, I need the packing tape. Oh, brilliantly, I moved it to the other house. Um, and for some reason, it's in the new house's garage. Like, I don't even need it there, but, like, I did move it, being very efficient. And, and there's this frustration that surrounds it. And then being in a new house is awkward. Um, our house is old, right? Not as old as Craig, who I hope is watching online and can hear this. Um, But it is pretty old. Like, it was one of the um, earliest buildings in town, and our, like, our foundation has settled quite a bit. And it's resulted in some really disorienting experiences, like having a non-level floor. For example, my bedroom on the second level has a distinct, like, sharp slant to it. And I didn't realize it the few times I came in during the purchasing process But one morning I woke up and I was not quite awake and I was doing things in the bedroom like organizing and moving things and and like trying to 
put the, the bed frame together and everything. And, and I realized it's really crooked, and it kind of made me dizzy. It was like, a, it, it, and to give you an idea, now that I know it's there, I can't stop paying attention to it. And it's like living in a, did anybody ever watch the 1960s Batman? And the villains' hideouts were always really slanted because they were so crooked, even their floors weren't level. Um, that is how my bedroom feels half the time. And it, like, it, it, it's sort of like walking in a funhouse where my feet don't want to hit the ground in the right places. And, you know, my balance is off because the floor doesn't match what my head says it should. And, and as we dive into Daniel's, um, the, this, this text in Daniel, um, we're going to kind of look at it from this perspective. Because where Daniel is in his text is not his home. His home is in Israel. But now he lives in Babylon. Um, his nation has been conquered. Their king has been blinded and I think eventually executed. Their country has been decimated. People have been taken away as slavery, as slaves. And now, like, like he's living in this new place. And it's not home. And I think it can be disorienting um, for him and for us um, as we live in this world that though it is home, it's not home. Are you all with me? Um, because we are citizens of heaven. Um, and so we're going to look at how he handled it and some of the things that came up. And, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to kind of really chew on this topic. So um, the big idea, big idea, if you want to know what I am talking about, the main point today is that we call this country, we call this state, we call this town, we call this place um, ours. But... It is just the land of our sojourn. Sojourn means travel, right? Like we are just traveling here. From cradle to grave is one long trip that we are taking. But we ain't staying here, right? The mortality rate in our world is unbelievable, 100%. Everybody's going to die. And that's wonderful because when that happens, it's not us staying dead. It is us going Oh my gosh, have I already put you all to sleep? Where are we going? Home. Right? Our home is not here. Um, oh no, not all my texts moved. All right, so, uh, okay. They're slightly out of order. We had some weirdness with slides. Um, where we ended last week, this is the last line from last week's sermon, um, and um, well, hold on, let me finish my main idea. So this is not our home. Our home is heaven. Um, we can love it here. How many of y'all love it here? I love Big Sandy, right? I love the mountains. I love winter mornings when you can smell wood fires as you walk to work. Oh, my gosh. I love watching my daughter and my son and my Josh. I don't know what to call you. Uh, <laughs> My ward, Batman had a ward that was Robin. I love watching my kids grow up here. I love y'all, right? I do. Um, we can love it here, but we can't worship it. And that is such a temptation. And so this is what we're going to dig into today. This is the big idea. And so our text, we're going to kind of go through the text, and then we're going to, like, um, um, peel out some applications and some ideas and concepts and stuff like that. But our text starts in, The great God 
has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream, the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, real quick, um, what has happened at this point is um, Daniel has interpreted a dream, and this dream tells all the story of your kingdom and the next kingdom and the next kingdom and the next kingdom. And then finally, we reach the very end of it where um, heaven happens and God's kingdom comes into this world and everything is recreated and we go to our kingdom, our home, which is eternity with God, which is salvation in Christ. Now, remember, Joshua, you got to follow along with the notes because I'm going to ask questions. I need a good question from you when we're done. There's a copy right there. <laughs> um, and so Daniel has interpreted this dream. He has done a really good job of it. And the point of the dream is, Nebuchadnezzar, you are just a tool in God's hand, and you will be that. That is it. And so that's a huge deal. That's an important thing to draw away. Um, and ultimately, the end of the dream is not a fortune teller fun time. It is not a bad novel series. The end of the dream is heaven is coming. Christ will come back. He'll actually, from this perspective, if you're thinking fourth dimensionally, he will come. He will die for our sins. He will ascend into heaven. And then he will come back to claim us and to recreate the world and to bring the dead in Christ back. All of that is coming. Um, the, the idea, the sojourner thing, I am drawing out of Philippians. This is Paul's letter. He's talking to the Philippian church. And he says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together. Now watch this. Important part. Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many, lie, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. And he's weeping over this. Why? Because he wants them destroyed? No. Because these are people who are in the same boat we were in and we want them saved. We want people to go to heaven with us. We want salvation. We don't want bad guys destroyed. We want people to be brought to Christ and to be renewed. Uh, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we, so that they will be like his glorious body. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, guys, there are enemies out there. There are things that are fighting us. There are all these distractions. There's this temptation to be like them where their God is their stomach. And I don't think it's literally their stomach. I think it is their appetites. Anybody have trouble with their appetites? Oh, my gosh. I am, I am, uh, I am the king of, of bad appetites and too much of them, Right? I was, well, I'm going to get into it. Like, but, but that is the way of the world, is to feed our desire and our hunger. And ultimately, our glory is our shame when that happens. The things that we look to and point to and say, oh, that's awesome, is our shame. So, this is the text we're going to interpret the rest of this through. 
Um, and we're going to keep coming back to the main ideas, but I wanted it in front of you. And keep it in your head. Their glory is their shame. We are not citizens here. So Daniel finishes his explanation of the dream. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate. Not prostate. This is a different word. I almost said it. But I didn't. That would have been embarrassing. Prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. That is high praise, isn't it? Like, to give you an idea... Him falling down and prostrating himself before Daniel is worship. And actually, Daniel probably got really uncomfortable because over and over again in his explanation, he's saying, hey, hey, God did this, not me. God did this, not me. God did this, not me. Right? And so this king falls down and he's sort of worshiping him. And how do you correct the king? That's dangerous territory and then he says pour out some offering and pour out some incense you know they pour out incense into fire as a part of like offering to god that was a he was engaging in almost pagan worship and he's like whoa this is god and some some interpreters like this is the whole thing that jumped out at me when i read this and it's why we're looking at such a tiny little slice of the onion um here is because some interpreters read this and said nebuchadnezzar converted He's clearly worshiping God. And this is new life and conversion, and he is now Jewish. And guess what? He ain't. Right? How do we know? Well, because he's going to do a bunch of bad stuff in the future that clearly demonstrates that he is not suddenly saved. Right? But there's a desire to worship greatness that is in all of us. Hear me out here. Um, I want you to think back. And remember a moment in the news or on Facebook or somewhere else where you heard a, a story about a famous person that you really liked suddenly becoming a follower of Christ. Anybody think of those? I heard that Chris Pratt is a Christian now. I heard that Ozzy Osbourne became a Christian. I don't think he did. Uh, but I do think that that other guy, Alice Cooper, right? Oh, I heard so-and-so is a Christian now. Oh, I heard this person found Christ. Oh, I heard Justin Bieber found Jesus. I, you know... Um, and there's this, I don't, you don't know and you don't need to know, son, who Justin Bieber is. Um, but there's this sort of desire that we have as human beings to worship things that are not God. And particularly in our culture, we worship celebrity, don't we? We love beautiful, beautiful people and we want to be just like them. We want to be thin like so-and-so. We want to be muscular like that guy. We want to look and act and wear the same clothes and do all the stuff like these people, right? And I'll tell you, it is most pronounced. You watch every political season, and some of the low-down, dirtiest, meanest, horriblest persons are suddenly devout believers, right? I remember when I was in high school and I did um, – I, I was in the Young Republicans. I'll admit it. Uh, and we went and campaigned. It was actually that time in Young Republicans convinced me that politics was not a thing that I could be involved in. Because we went and campaigned for this guy. He was running for it was Virginia. He was running for Congress or something like that. I don't remember. And he presented himself as this very believer, devout Christian guy. 
And, like, that was his whole thing. And I remember sitting down and all these high school kids sitting around with him. And he was telling us about his time in high school and glorifying how he would go out drinking and sleep around and everything else. And I'm like, doesn't sound right, buddy. And I realized that, like, we want this guy to be our, on our team. I mean, that's what it boils down to because he is a name. He has a name. He's a real person. He's somebody who is important. But we were glorifying him, not Christ. And that's a dangerous ground to find yourself on. Um, and so, as I, my, my second big idea, okay, the world is full of great and wonderful people and places and things, and they are all created. Hear me out, they are all created. And if you worship something that is created and not the creator, you are lost. This applies to everything. There are people who worship their families. There is a great little story. If you take the time to read the book, uh, oh, doggone, I'm not going to remember it. Um, it's C.S. Lewis wrote this book about waking up in hell and going to heaven on a bus and talking to people. And there's a woman in the story in, in heaven like who won't go to heaven, wants to go back to hell because she worships her family and would never say, my family is less important to me than Jesus. And she chooses damnation over giving up her family as her number one idol. Well, but I can love my family. Of course you can. God commands you to love your family. Like we're created to love our families. But anything you love more than you love Jesus is a problem. You can't serve two masters, right? Can't serve God and money because you'll end up loving one and hating the other or hating one and loving the other. And so we love God. You can't. Love your toys. You can't love sensuality and sex and and popularity and all that and love Jesus. You've got to make a choice. You cannot do both. But our world will tell you over and over and over again, worship this thing. Worship youth, right? Anybody? I'm getting old. My daughter, who is lovely and wonderful and not in the room right now, texted me a weird Instagram photograph of myself with grayer hair. And I was a little annoyed at first. And then I realized, you know, it's funny. Our world says that youth is the most important thing, but the scriptures repeatedly say that, like, age and gray hair is something to attain for. Wisdom comes with age, right? Silver hair is the crown of glory on, the, on, you know, on a father's head and stuff like that. Like, but I, I want to be young. I, and I am young. But the world is full of these idols, and we're going to hit this over and over again as we go because... It is a temptation. Nebuchadnezzar is in this spot, and he, in my opinion, represents some of this temptation. Power and influence and association with big names. Um, If you have no other better thing to do with your time, you should sit down and read arguments about which dead people were and were not Christians. I read probably 40 articles after the death of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa! (laughs) Where they argued that she was an atheist. What? (laughs) Or where people argued that, you know, Charles Darwin was no longer an atheist at his death. Who cares? Right? But that's idolatry. We want to be associated with the awesome people. And Daniel is in this spot where suddenly the king is there and the king is praising him and dumping wealth on him. And as we look at the next verse, then... The king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, meaning the, like, state where Babylon was, so the capital, and placed him in charge of all of its 
wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak and Beni, for those of you with the Message Bible, he appointed them administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Um, so, they got promoted, and they got raised up. If you are interested in hearing more about that, there are note cards in the pews. Grab one and write, I want to know what happened to those guys. Because we have, like, um, archaeologists have discovered um, ancient texts that talk about the jobs they did. Isn't that crazy? Like, these specific guys are mentioned in Babylonian literature, and they were given specific jobs. And that's, like, that amazed me. I'd never heard that before, but in my research, I found that. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's crazy. These guys were real people, and they had jobs. Of course, I knew they were real people, um, and I didn't need outside resources to support that idea. But they were raised up, and we can know other things about them. And so Daniel is in the court, and these guys are out serving the kingdom. So everything is going great. And Nebuchadnezzar is a Christian now. I mean, a Jew. Early for Christianity. Um, but King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Mm, he made a statue. Dun, dun, dun. It's just a statue, right? Um, for the most part, Jews did not like this sort of thing because it was a temptation to worship that thing. It was a graven image, right? But it's not a given that that's what it was. And statues were not hated by Jewish people, right? This is not a problem at this point. However, what Nebuchadnezzar has done, um, and we're going to find out as we go forward, is he has made an idol. And he made a statue of a person. And there's all kinds of arguing as to what this was. The minimum facts we get into this are, out of this are, um, 60 cubits high. That's nine stories. Right? Monstrosity is the, is the word I've seen applied to it repeatedly. Monstrosity is a monstrosity. is huge. Um, and so, uh, and it's nine feet wide at the base. Um, and it is all gold. Most commentaries, most scholars assume that he was inspired to do this by the statue in his dream, right? Because this was a really impressive event. Oh, my gosh, somebody had a god, from Nebuchadnezzar's point, a god, communicate with him directly. And so this is a major event, and I'm going to build a statue. He did not build it out of all the different materials. He built it out of gold. If you remember from last week, gold was his part. And so some people argue he probably built a statue of himself made of gold, right? It is also possible that it was one of the pagan gods like Marduk or someone like that. But the gold is almost certainly because it was his kingdom that was gold. His kingdom was the best one. And so he's going to build a statue about it. Um, it was probably about 16 miles out of town. It was, there's a lot of discussion. Actually, archaeologists have discovered what is probably the base of this statue. And these statues weren't unusual in the ancient world. There were tons of them. This is not a unique thing. But like, like this is a big deal for Daniel. Because Daniel, Daniel's probably getting a little comfortable at this point, don't you think? Like he's not going to get executed. He's got a good job. He's probably got great like place to live. His Food worries are all worked out. His friends all have great jobs. Everything is settled, and it is easy for a guy to get into a place where everything is going well. This is my deal now. And to forget about home. The problem is, 
Babylon is not. He's a sojourner. He is a traveler. Um, and it is easy to lose that as we go. Um, I want to make a really quick point. The world will often be our friend when we are useful. But the hearts of men are corrupted. Actually, I think that the line is the hearts of men are easily corrupted. But the truth is the hearts of men are already corrupted. And that when the world praises you in the next breath, they will often turn on you because you don't live here. Because you're not one of us. And the more you follow Christ, the more you look like Christ, the more you act like Christ, the more it's going to be apparent you're not one of us. And it's easy to get confused about the church's position as friends of the world. And there are folks who do this. Now, if you watch this, right, there are folks who convert the scriptures to where they'll say, oh, well, the Bible says this, but I bet if I read it sideways with the right like view on it, suddenly the sinful things that Paul says don't do are okay. And we can do whatever we want because the scriptures agree with everything the world says, right? Mm, nope. But the desire there is not to be attacked by the world because the world is my friend. But I'm going to tell you, with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? And in reality, with friends like that, God is your enemy. It is easy to get comfortable next to the world. And I think Daniel was probably tempted to get comfortable at this point. We are often tempted to be comfortable. But at the end of the day, the world will never be the friend of God. Not in its sin, because sin is literally hatred of God. In our natural state, we are corrupt and we despise God. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before him. This is several hundred guys. They are the administration. This is like having the whole DMV and the whole ATF and the whole, all of those other groups show up in front of this giant statue. There's several hundreds of them there. They are probably a mix of nations and not Babylonians directly. So they're from everywhere, and this is all being spoken in Aramaic, so they would have been able to understand. Um, and so they're all there before this giant statue, and it was almost certainly the most impressive, stinking thing they ever saw, right? There's a big statue. I mean, heck, you put a nine-story building in the middle of Big Sandy, you ain't going to miss it. Our water tower is like five feet tall, right? Um, so it is there, and they are there, and they are out there, and this is the moment where things get rough. Then the herald loudly proclaimed. The herald was a man who was potentially named Harold, but probably not. So this guy, Harold, loudly proclaims things for the king. He is the king's... Uh, megaphone. You all with me? It was a very common thing for, for Harold to show up to these events, and Mr. Harold would speak on behalf of the king and announce things. Um, this is the guy, this is the job I would have in the ancient world. I'd be the loud mouth guy who spoke so loud everybody heard you. And Harold stands up and says, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, 
zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all the other kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Oh my gosh, I thought he was one of us. How could King Nebuchadnezzar do this? Maybe we should excuse this idol worship. Maybe we should just bow down and make it easy, right? Oh, well, he probably means that this is God, and so if I bow down and worship it, I'm actually worshiping God. What if I bow down and worship it, and all I do is think about God? Then I'm not really doing it. I'm faking it, but really worshiping God. Does this sound silly? Oh, but it is the case that we do this all the time, right? Oh, I know I shouldn't, but it's only a little gossip. I'm going to use it to pray. Anyone else? Just me? All right. (laughs) By the way, a couple of interesting things. If you are curious about all of these different job positions, I can tell you about them in the deep dive. Um, Write it down, toss it in the pile. I will answer questions about it later. Uh, The other thing is all these different musical instruments are almost certainly from, like, in order to, like, represent the different styles of everybody out there. This is a huge orchestra marching band event, and it would represent everybody's viewpoint, everybody's culture, because it is amazing how beautiful the music is when the Pied Piper is leading you somewhere. Right? Now, Rakshak and Benny are there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for anybody using the the Bible. Um, They're there, and they're probably thinking, oh, ain't doing that. And then the herald continues, and Mr. Herald says, whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately, or will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, this statue would have been made out of bricks, and it would have been made, like, inlaid with gold, because nobody built nine-story statues out of gold. That's absolutely absurd. Um, And so they would have had a furnace there, like a kiln, and this kiln would have been absolutely enormous. You would have had to use like a a scaffolding to get to the top of it. It would have been in the shape of like an old style milk bottle. Is anybody old enough, Terry? Did you get glass milk bottles delivered to your house when you were a kid? Uh, (laughs) It would have been shaped like that. There would have been a giant opening on one side and a little opening on the other. And they would have thrown stuff in there to get it going hot. Some of these things would reach about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. This is no joke, right? Um, And so this thing would have been there because they built a statue in the middle of the desert. And you needed something to make the bricks and to smelt the gold, right? And so you have this giant smelting like piece of equipment, and it is there. And conveniently enough, this is a place where you could throw someone to kill them. Probably not all that exciting for the people who are there. Probably downright terrifying. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar is elsewhere, like discussed in the scripture, throwing someone into a furnace. Isn't that weird? Like in the histories, there are two guys that offended God, and God's like, you know what? Nebuchadnezzar's going to set you on fire for this. And he literally threw them in a furnace. (laughs) Or actually, I think he set them on fire, so he didn't mention furnace. But Nebuchadnezzar is a bad dude. Um, He, so like, hey, do it or else. Now, I'm going to tell you something. The scriptures tell us that we are to obey the rulers in the places we are standing at the moment. Everybody with me? God sets rulers over nations so they are his representative. That's, it's, it's just in the scriptures, right? Like it's there. So you obey the rulers. But, but 
we obey God above all. Why? Because I'm visiting here, I'm going to follow the rules, but I do not belong here. I have a different citizenship. And so if a law in a country contradicts the law of my own nation, I follow my own nation's law, right? I was in a, um, I was in a museum with Jessica a few years ago. Uh, it was before Abby was born. We went to this museum, uh, and they had the Dead Sea Scrolls on display. And I, I walked around and took pictures of absolutely everything. Everything. And my wife said, honey, did you read the sign? And I said, hold on, let me snap a photo of it. And what did the sign say? No pictures. <laughs> and you know what I did? I took as many pictures as I could. You know why? Because I am a wicked man to the core, as all of us are by birth. And it is not an excuse. I shouldn't have done it. If you are in a train station, it says, don't spit on the floor. Do you spit on the floor? No. When you walk out of the train station, can you spit on the ground? Absolutely. But while you're in the place you are, you follow the rules. And we do this especially as believers because, number one, it ain't ours. And number two, this is very important, number two, um, those uh, people, the world, the government, everyone else is watching us. And if we disregard and ignore the rules, then we show what kind of people we are. Right? So if I walk into a store, use an example, and the store has a prominently placed sign that said, do not enter without a pair of shoes. What did you think I was going to say? A mask? And I wander around barefoot. And they say, excuse me, sir, we serve food here. Your, you know, dirty feet need to get out of here or they need to have shoes on. Like flip-flops, which are almost not shoes, Josh. Um, but... <laughs> So, you know, if I don't obey that rule, I show what kind of person I am, right? If I walk into a place and they say, excuse me, this really bothers me. It is not clean. Put shoes on. And I say, forget you. I am a free person. I can do whatever I want. I may be doing what I want. I may be asserting my rights, but I am not behaving as a representative of Christ. You remember that when you were in school and you'd go on a field trip and they would say... Now, remember, while you were out in public, you are a representative of this school, and everything you do will reflect on us. Remember, folks, we're on a field trip. Our home isn't here. Our home is heaven. You are representatives of Christ. Everything you do to love or hate or serve or obey or disobey, everything reflects on Jesus. However, there is a line. If I am in another country and they say, you know, hey, betray your country for us, our law says you have to. I can disobey that law, right? Because I don't live here. I'm a citizen of my own country. We obey God's laws when they're in conflict with the world's laws. So, like during World War II, there were people who hid Jewish people in their houses. That's an important thing to do. It was illegal. Did you still do it? Absolutely. They asked, do you have any Jewish people here? There were some people who were Christians who would say, yes, I do, because I won't lie. That would be sinful. Go get them. But that would be a really stupid thing to do, right? Because it's a lesser matter of the law over a greater matter of the law, which is the preservation of life. We must obey our rulers, but we do not obey them when they are in conflict with God. We're very quick to say, I am a believer. I will not 
and to just assert our rights and to assert our beliefs where God's law doesn't really apply. And we need to be careful of that because we are his representatives. We're guests in this world. We are sojourners. We're travelers. We're on vacation. Um, And it is the worst vacation ever. Um, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's the big idea here, guys. Um, Anybody ever stand in a crowd that was doing something wrong and do the same thing? Because you forget who you are? We have to remember who we are. We've got to remember where we belong, which means we have to call home and work hard so we don't forget where we belong. It's easy to forget. It is. It's easy to forget, and you forget in little bits and pieces. You just do. It happens. Oh, my gosh, everybody's yawning. Am I boring, or were you up late? Um, so what are our key concepts? Uh, first of all, we just live here. Right? This is not our home. Um, Why does this matter? Because, um, first off, the laws. Right? We have to obey laws, um, but we have to obey God first. I have a great quote. Most of you all got a second sheet, and I decided to hand out my notes this morning for a reason. I decided to hand out my notes so that you could read what I am reading. And this is from a sermon given by a fellow named Andrew Melville. And he was speaking against King James of Scotland. He was like King James VI of Scotland, but James I of England. And he was uh, speaking against him because James was trying to usurp the authority of God. And what, what Mr. Melville said was, Sir, speaking to a king, Sir, we will always humbly, rever- uh, humbly reverence your majesty in public. But since we have this occasion to be with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors to both, uh, both to Christ and to you. Therefore, sir, at diverse times I've told you, so now again I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James and the Lord of the, Com- the, Lord of the Commonwealth, and there is Jesus, or Christ Jesus, the king of the church whose subject James the Sixth is, and of whom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head. We will yield to you in your place and give you all due obedience. But again I say, you are not the head of the church. You cannot give us that eternal life that we seek for even in this world, and you cannot deprive us of it. That had to be the most terrifying moment of that man's life, right? What's he saying? He's saying, hey, I'm going to respect you all the time, but I can't do this. I'm going to love you all the time, but I can't do this. I love my country. I love this state. I love my town. And I will follow our rules, except for occasionally the speed limit rule. But I'm doing better. At the end of the day... I'm called to obey because I don't live here. My home, my house just happens to be here and all my stuff. But even I'm going to leave all that stuff behind. Um, it's not our home. Don't get too comfortable. Don't forget. It is easy, isn't it? Isn't it easy to plan your next vacation? Isn't it? 
Isn't it easy to think about the new bed you're getting? Isn't it easy to watch, uh, I believe the phrase is food porn on, on TV or on YouTube, where you watch and they've got cheese rolling down the side of some meal and like, you know, it's just amazing. Am I the only one who enjoys doing that? Oh my gosh. Isn't it easy to look at new cars and think about how wonderful your life would be if you just owned one? Isn't it wonderful to look at the world around you and think, if only I were thinner? Isn't it wonderful and easy to look at those pictures of those models on the covers of magazines and sometimes on websites or whatever and to think, if only my wife looked like that? I'm not saying you should do that. Because in reality, the world is tempting us. This is my second key concept. Temptation isn't just something that is visually attractive. It is going to grab at every part of you. And it's going to say, forget where you live. Forget it. Just hang out here. Have fun. YOLO, right? You only live once. Enjoy everything you can. But in reality, you live for eternity. And if you act like this life is all there is, the second half ain't going to be fun. You, you can say Jesus is Lord, but if you do not act like Jesus is Lord, there is weight attached to it. Temptation will feed your pride, tell you how wonderful you are. It'll tickle your ears. It'll hit your weaknesses. It'll trick you into believing that what you are doing is really the right thing. Of course I should gossip about that guy. He's bad. Of course I should hate that guy. He hated me first. Of course I should take this. The government or the grocery store won't even notice. Of course, I should look at this website. It's not hurting anyone. Of course, of course, of course, I can do this. Um, but it's a little like when Dorothy. Anybody know that? Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz? Dorothy is running up to the Emerald City. And what is there outside of the Emerald City? Poppies. Who said it? Say it in the voice. Do it right. Oh, wow. You would make a great Wicked Witch of the West. Don't you live on the west side of town? No, you live on the east side of town. <laughs> um, and what happens? They run through the poppies with this beautiful thing. And the poppies, which are where opium comes from, I suppose that's probably why the poppies, because like, I've never been around poppies and suddenly, or eaten a poppy seed bagel and thought, oh my gosh, I'm falling into a trance or whatever. Like, it's the weirdest, most insane part of a pretty weird and insane movie. Um, but she runs through the poppies and she falls asleep. And her goal is right there. She can see heaven, and she's sleeping. Those of us who are in Christ, it is so easy to fall asleep, isn't it? And particularly, being busy will help you. Anybody so busy you can't see straight anymore? Anybody so busy you're looking at your watch and thinking, I get what you're saying, Eric, can you just snap it up a bit? <laughs> Rebecca, um... <laughs> You are, aren't you? I'm doing my best. Um, the temptation to be busy draws us away from Christ. The temptation to be entertained all the time draws us away from devotion. The, atten- like the temptation to have sound and noise around us all the time draws us away from solitude. Busyness makes us skip prayer, doesn't it? I don't, I don't have time to do that reading and praying thing. The kids need food. By the way, the kids always need food. I got a tractor to drive. I got no time for Jesus. Hits our weaknesses. 
catches us every which way over and over again. I, this is a slight diversion, but I'm going to do it anyway. God is no respecter of person, right? God does not look and say, oh, Kirk Cameron found Jesus. I'm happy, right? God does not say, Chris Pratt preached the gospel at the Oscars. Oh, wow, I'm so happy. Chris Pratt, he didn't care. Well, he does care, but he doesn't. He is not impressed by celebrities. He is not impressed by people of wealth and means and power. Um, we do not need famous people to find Jesus in order to spread the gospel because it was spread by fishermen who are mostly potentially illiterate, or at least people called them illiterate, right? We don't need it. Is it wonderful when a celebrity finds Jesus? Yes. Should we pile all our coins up and say he's on our team now? Nope. Should we get his autograph? Nope. Should we buy his edition of the Bible? I don't know. You can, I guess, but it ain't any different than any other Bible, and it's really easy to worship people. I avoid that kind of stuff if I can. Is it sinful? Nope. Is it sinful to worship people? Yes. The reality is that the salvation of a, of a beggar on the streets is as significant in eternity as the salvation of an emperor in terms of God's kingdom. The um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, oh my gosh, see, here I am, I'm stuck. Um, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspect proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all play, all politics, etc., 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 everything. Read the rest of the quote on your own. I'm going way long. I don't care because I've got to say this stuff. Um, there's a great line in this song from Rich Mullins. I was going to run it on the screen. I'm not going to. Or I may do it while y'all are getting up and leaving. Um, I gave you all the lyrics. Read it. It is about how amazing it is to live in America and how tempting it is to forget. Because we live in the land of poppies, folks. Nobody tells you when you get born here how much you'll come to love it and how you'll never belong here. So I call you my country and I'll be lonely for my home. And I wish that I could take you there with me. Folks, God is no respecter of men. The most beautiful model on the cover of some magazine will look like a nightmare without Christ. And the worst, most hideous person standing before you today will look like an angel or better in Christ. Worldly power and influence is of particular attraction to us as idols. We want to control the government. Mm -hmm. We want money. We want people to read our books. We want people to listen to us, right? It is a temptation and it is an idol. In reality, I talk to folks who want to preach the gospel to the nation but can't do it with their neighbors, can't do it with their spouse. They want to serve the world, but they can't serve their kids. 
we want big things. But if you can't be responsible for big things or little things, you aren't going to be responsible for big things. That's why it says that no one should be an elder if they cannot keep their family managed. Because if you can't pastor your own kids, you can't pastor church. Please do not allow that to affect badly on me. Uh, my kids are awesome. They just misbehave here. Um, the last thing, in Christ's strength, we can overcome any trial. I have a bunch of scripture verses I am not citing, and I very much apologize for this. Um, the idea behind this, who knows the phrase, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that is on the wall of every CrossFit gym in the country, isn't it? But it's not about exercise. It is about facing temptation and overcoming it. It is about experiencing hardship and being filled with joy and contentedness no matter what. It is about being filled with Christ and having his strength. That's what it's about. And in reality, I can do all things. I can even sit through this, like, super insanely long sermon, which I thought would be shorter. I can sit through it because Christ strengthens me. How do we apply this? I really wanted to do these slow, but I'm not going to. You have to remember every day, remind yourself every day, every day you are a citizen of heaven. It should be the first thing you do in the morning. All right, God, I'm going out to enjoy my vacation. I'm going to, out to enjoy the world you put in front of me, but I need to remember I don't belong here. You need to talk to God. How many of y'all talk to God? It's hard to remember, isn't it? There's so much other stuff to do. And if there's so much other stuff to do, you're forgetting to talk to God, it's because you're forgetting to call home. Because you're forgetting where your home is. I'm too busy enjoying the world. You have to remind yourself daily. That's prayer. That's scripture. That's silence. That's serving other people. That's obeying the teachings of Christ to love people who are unlovable and horrible. It is everything. And you have to keep it in your head and you've got to keep it at the forefront of your mind because it is really easy to fall asleep. I was talking with a couple of guys about driving while falling asleep and how some farmers, I'm not saying anybody here, will drive and sleep while the combine auto steers down the way. And when you hit the edge, the beep wakes you up so you can turn. And then you go back to sleep. Right? But you can't do that on the highway. Well, you have rumble strips now. You can kind of do it. Um, <laughs> but you can't do that on the highway, right? And you can't do it in life. If Sunday morning is your beep and you sleep through your walk with Christ through the rest of the week, guess what? You're going to end up in a ditch or headlong into a tree or a semi. Or... You know, go the route of like accidentally just turning your car around and go in the opposite direction. Right? My wife was sleeping once and I, I drove for like five hours while she was asleep. And she woke up and she said, where are we? I said, like, I don't know, I've just been driving. And she looked at the highway signs and she's like, honey, you missed your exit 90 miles ago. I wasn't paying attention. Stay awake. Stay awake. Do it every day. Learn to check against the, the scriptures. Um, the Bereans are mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, they were a group of people that when Paul showed up there to teach, uh, when Paul showed up, by the way, write down Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Previous point, the previous application, that was the text I, I noted. Acts, 
17, 10 to 15. These are Jewish people. Paul shows up. He starts preaching about Jesus, and they're like, wait a minute. Let me get my Bible. And they pulled out their Bible, and everything Paul said, they checked. And they discussed, and they weighed, and they considered. They did not just accept it. And Paul said they were of a more noble character. In our world, there are people who will lie to you and trick you and use the scriptures to drag you off in a different direction. And we have to measure constantly. Or they'll say, surely God wants me to be happy. I should, dot, 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 dot. Learn to be a Berean. Learn to check. Learn to measure. Um, We must grow and develop spiritually to prepare. There is a line. The more we sweat in peace, the less we bleed in war. I will tell you, when you face temptation, if you walk into it unprepared, if you are spiritually dead, temptation will knock you right over. That's why alcoholism is a spiritual illness, and the solution is spiritual. You grow spiritually to quit drinking. Because when you are tempted, you lean on Christ. Um, and so we have to grow and develop and, and work. It is interesting. There's a line in First Timothy, and I am going to read this one. And I'm going to read this one because when I thought of it, it beat the heck out of me. Just absolutely cut me to the core. And that is the best and worst experience in life. Anybody ever have that happen? Is anybody still awake to answer me? <laughs> All right. First Timothy chapter 4. Watch this. First Timothy chapter 4. Everybody with me? Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, 4, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So what he's saying is, he's like, look, we don't have our hope set on this world. We have it on eternity, right? And so, and so, and so, we don't worry about our physical bodies because they're going to decay. You're going to get old, and you're probably going to get fat, and you're going to get arthritis, and you're going to have all kinds of other problems. Is it important to work your body and to make sure you're healthy? Yes, but not as important as spiritual. I am quite proud of the fact that I, when I had a gym to go to before COVID, oh, COVID, I exercised an hour to two hours a day. You think I spent an hour to two hours a day in prayer? Reading the scriptures? Serving? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Anybody spend an 30 minutes a day exercising? Anybody spend 30 minutes a day in spiritual development? Well, you got your 55 at this point, so <laughs> good for the day. I have an Apple Watch. I love my Apple Watch. It is the Tamagotchi that keeps the stupid animal that is me alive. But in reality, I need one that reminds me, hey, you haven't studied enough. You haven't prayed enough. You haven't fellowshiped enough. You haven't visited enough. You haven't done these things. Finally, if we stand in relationship with other people, with the church, with other believers, if we sit down with each other at the dining room table and we talk about Jesus and our lives, it pushes us to be better. I have spoken an hour. I am so sorry, guys. Um, And I know I don't normally apologize. I'm trying so hard to cut shorter and it's going longer. And I cannot figure out what I'm doing wrong. Um, if you know, tell me, um, but I'm going to tell you, stand with other believers. 
It's like having a gym partner. Michael used to go to the gym with me every day at four something in the morning. And I went every day because if I didn't go, I wouldn't be there to open the door for Michael. And I always exercised because I had a guy to remind me who depended on me. If you are not in a close relationship with another believer, you will fall asleep easier. If you have no one who you can say, I failed to, you will fail. If you have no one to pray with, if you have no one to listen to their troubles and offer them advice, you will struggle and you will stumble and you will fall. You need to be in community. That's why Christ sent his followers out in pairs. That's why he said, do not give up meeting with the church. Not just with the church, but with each other in each other's homes, eating meals, spending time together. If you do not have a relationship like that, find one. I'm going to close super long. I know I said I wouldn't apologize anymore. I said what I felt like was on my heart. I cannot figure out how to slice this thinner. And I'm still working on it. Y'all, for those of y'all who don't know, I'm trying to do a better job of preaching and maybe failing. Um, Let's pray. You can leave. You can read the lyrics and listen to the song. You can do whatever you want. Um, Heavenly Father, I'm apologizing to the room, but I'm not apologizing to you. I feel like I said what you put on my heart. I feel like I said what you put before me, and I I feel like I was trying to be faithful. Um, I pray that you would help me to... Help me to know that, that it's only through you that anything worthwhile happens. That my words are nothing. Help me to remember this world is not my home. You know, that the hour I, I spent talking this morning is nothing next to the eternity that you have for us. Um, I pray that you would bring me back to that over and over and over again. In Christ's name, amen. Have a good morning, folks. This is a song we wrote over in Ireland because the Irish people kept asking us what America was like. Not that they didn't know. It's just that they don't have a lot of televisions over there, so they have conversations for entertainment. And uh, they will ask you all kinds of things that they already know just to get you started. And being dumb Americans, we thought they really were stupid. So we uh, decided to write a song that would try to describe America to them. And uh, this was one of those songs that took us a long time to write, and we're not particularly proud of it. But... After you spend that much time writing a song, you're going to record it whether you like it or not. So, uh, this is, uh, actually the music for this song. Spend that much time writing a song, you're going to record it whether you like it or not. So, uh, this is, uh, actually the music for this Beaker Road on the tour before, uh, the tour before we went to Europe and, uh,